Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Well, today I get to talk about good news. I love good news. Raise your hand if you love to get bad news. Nobody loves to get bad news. Raise your hand if you love to get good news. Everybody loves to get good news. And I would suspect that if you are here today, then you have heard at some point or multiple points in your past the good news, the ultimate good news, the gospel, which literally means good news. I remember where I was. I remember vividly hearing it for the first time. It was Easter Sunday of 1996 in a small warehouse that was converted into a church in Lindenhurst, New York. And I remember the pastor saying, thanks be to God that because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, those of us who believe in him will not have to spend eternity separated from God, but will get to be with God forever. And in that moment, it struck me that I had to know for sure if this was the truth because here's the thing that sounded a lot like good news for the christians but i've heard things that sounded like good news before and i had to know was this truly good news and one of the things i learned over the next few days as i asked questions as i read the bible as i prayed as i wrestled with the lord is that it's not only good news it's the only good news and it is in fact true and here's some things that grabbed me once i allowed myself to believe the truth of the gospel this good news that it didn't matter who i was and what i had done it doesn't matter how little i thought of myself or all the things i continued to carry the guilt for Despite all of that, despite all of my shortcomings, despite the fact that I wasn't who I wished I was, God still loved me and offered this good news to me. It wasn't because I was a good person. It wasn't because I was better than my neighbor. But out of his grace, out of his mercy, out of his love, God extended to me that which I could not acquire for myself. It was good good news. Now that may sound familiar. That may sound similar to your story. In fact, I sure hope that the good news that you heard was this good news, because again, it's not only the true good news, it's the only good news. And when we talk about the gospel, the true gospel, the only gospel, I want to make sure we understand what we're talking about. So here's here's ways of identifying the gospel or ways that when we proclaim the gospel to others, as I I desire, I hope, I wish, man, I hope we're doing this. It needs to always include these three essential elements. Jesus' lordship, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection. Those three things are always part of a gospel presentation. They are always part of the good news. In fact, those are all essential elements that make the good news good news. 
that Jesus wasn't just some random Jewish guy 2,000 years ago, but that he was, in fact, the Lord. He was the Son of God. And that his death wasn't just a death like every other person died, but his death was an atonement for sins prescribed by God for the salvation of the world, even us, Jesus' death. And that the death wasn't the end of the story. That we, we didn't have to sit and wonder, did his death accomplish what he said it would accomplish? But by his resurrection, he demonstrated the truth of it. And so those three essential elements are always part of the gospel. They're always part of the good news. When you hear it proclaimed here, when you proclaim it to others, and this is the good news that we hear and on which we take our stand. And it has to include Jesus's lordship, Jesus's death, and Jesus's resurrection. Here's something else about the true gospel, the only gospel, that it recognizes our problem and God's solution. It recognizes our problem, our problem being sin, the problem that we caused and we couldn't do anything to rectify once we caused it. The problem that we had, that it wasn't a one-time thing, naughty you, but the thing that we keep doing over and over and over and over again because we are essentially broken. From the time of the fall onward, humanity has been broken because of sin. So our problem is sin, but God's solution is that which he can do and we couldn't do for ourselves, which is to cover, to make atonement for that which we did wrong. God is able to fix the problem that we caused and we couldn't fix for ourselves. And the gospel, the true gospel, the only gospel, is that we have a problem and God alone provides the solution. We see this in passages such as 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. It'll be up on the screen. It says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, primary importance, foundational importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So what do we see here? Paul's writing to a church that he had himself uh, established, planted four or five years earlier. He was in Corinth for a period of a year and a half. He himself proclaimed the gospel on every possible opportunity. Many of the people who were part of that church, Paul was the one who led them to faith. He was the one who developed their leaders. He was the one who established that church, walking with them during his time there in Corinth. And here, four or five years later, he's writing a letter to this same church, and he's reminding them of the gospel that he preached when he was there. And what do we see? We see those three essential elements. We see Jesus' lordship, Christ. We see Jesus' death and resurrection clearly portrayed. Christ died for our sins. He was raised. We also see our problem and God's solution. Where do we see this? It says Christ died for our 
sins. Here's another passage. Paul, again, writing this time to a different church, a church that he didn't establish, a church at Rome. And he's speaking about Abraham, the father of the Jews. And here's what he writes in Romans 4, verses 23 through 25. He says, The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, that's not for Abraham alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Again, we see these three essential elements. Jesus our Lord, he says, the Lordship of Christ is there. Delivered over to death and raised to life. These essential elements, lordship, death, and resurrection, something we see over and over and over again in the innumerable times that the New Testament proclaims the gospel. We also see again that one problem, our problem, and God's solution. He was delivered over to death, not arbitrarily, but for our sins. Again, we caused the problem And God brings the solution. Here's the solution that God brings. The crediting of righteousness and justification. What is justification? Right standing before God. I've never had to stand before a judge because of something that I've done wrong. But for much of my life, even that time in my life when I didn't know the Lord that thought of standing before eternal judge popped into my mind. Because I have done things in my past that I was completely ashamed of. Things that, you know, when, I'm sit, when I sat, sat there and heard the gospel for the first time, I wondered, can this even be true for me? But what about this? But what about that? You know, and I think even as Christians, I know that many have come to me and talked to me, you know, am I... Are you, how, do I be, how can I be sure I'm saved? What if I get to God and he just rejects me? Does God really love me even though I've done this? And these thoughts go through many of our minds, if not all of our minds, at different points, in different seasons of our life. But here's what God's solution brings, according to the scripture, according to the gospel, over and over again. That because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have justification right standing before God. Not because of what we did. Not because of what we didn't do. Because of what Jesus did. And so when we stand before God, we don't have to worry about that word of condemnation if we have put our faith and trust in him in the true gospel because we have right standing before God. He looks at us and says, not guilty. Now, inside, we might be thinking of all the things we've done wrong. And let me just tell you, God knows those things too. But we're not judged because of what we've done. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are judged on account of his righteousness. And so God provides the solution to our problem. So again, what is the true gospel? It includes three essential elements. Jesus' lordship, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection. And it includes our problem and God's solution. And here's the last part I want you to get about the gospel. We have to 
define the gospel, think through the gospel. Those things are essential to it. And so is this, that the gospel, our salvation, is by grace through faith. It is by grace through faith. This is how it is received. In other words, we had a problem that we caused and we couldn't fix for ourselves. So God is not secretly sitting back watching us try and fail because he knows we can't. And so he has provided the solution by his grace. God had to fix it for us. We cannot add to it. We cannot subtract from what God has done in our salvation. We see this in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Again, Paul, writing most of the New Testament, wrote this as well to a church in Ephesus. And here's what he said. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, not by deeds, not by actions. So that no one can boast. You can't say to God... I'm going to heaven because I did it. I made it. Whoo! I dodged all those landmines. I worked really hard. I gave a lot of money to the poor. I helped out my neighbor. I did good things. I showed up at church 364 days a year. I only missed one day. I showed up 51 Sundays out of the year. And last year it was all 52. You can't boast to God. It's not by anything you've done. It is all by him. He's the one who brings us salvation. Grace means not, uh, sorry, grace means getting what we don't deserve. So it's like when the coach, and we'll, we'll look at Craig, because every time I say coach, I think of Craig. It's like the coach says, if you win this game, I'll take the whole team out for ice cream. And we fight hard, but we fail. We do not win the game. We make several mistakes, and we just didn't clinch it. And at the end, the coach looks at us, a bunch of sad sacks, really sad. We lost the game, and he says, let's go, guys. We're going to go out for ice cream anyway. Wait a second. We didn't deserve that. We didn't win the game. We didn't do what needed to be done in order to get the ice cream. But the coach extended grace and gave ice cream anyway. And to help us understand this point, Craig is going to take us all out for ice cream after the service. Thanks, Craig. <laughs> he thinks I'm kidding. <laughs> no. Again, grace. In April of 1996, I heard the true gospel proclaimed in that warehouse that was converted into a church, and I later committed my life to Christ as a result. But here's why I say all that, too. Because I hope you knew all that. If that was like... Kevin, this is like a refresher course. I know the gospel. Well, praise God you know the gospel. Because you have to have if you're going to respond to it. And you have to know it if you're going to be proclaiming it to others. But here's what happened to me just a few short weeks after I responded to the gospel back in 1996. I was on America Online, AOL. Who remembers that? Raise your hand. Okay. Um, and I was in a chat room. Ever been in a chat room? Bunch of random people saying random things. I don't know why I thought I was going to get productive conversation out of it. But this was a, a Christian chat room. And I'm a new Christian. And I'm excited about my faith. And I want to talk to other Christians. There's no church service. There's nothing going on right now. So I have to find other ways to connect with God's people because I'm excited. So I go to this Christian chat room. 
And there's this guy on there, his screen name is Salt of Earth. And he says, hey, can we talk in a private chat? It's like, sure. I didn't know. So we go into a private chat and he says, hey, congratulations on making your commitment to the Lord. I'm like, thank you. And he asked me a question. He says, were you baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? I said, yes, brother. I was just baptized this past weekend in a swimming pool at my pastor's house. And he says, no, 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 no. Were you baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? Well, Jesus died and rose to pay for my sins. I trusted in him. And then out of obedience, I was baptized. And he says, no, you're not saved. I'm like, what do you mean? And he took me to a couple passages of scripture. And he wove them beautifully out of context, which I didn't know at the time. And it was pretty much that I, he was asserting that I have to believe, but then be baptized and be baptized specifically within a particular denomination that would, would, would assert that I have to be baptized for the forgiveness of my sins. So if I, if I came forward to that altar call, put my trust in Jesus, and then died before I was baptized, I'd be going to hell. Does that sound right to you? Raise your hand if that sounds right to you so we can schedule a pastoral meeting after. <coughs> Excuse me. No, that didn't sound right to me either, but I was a little worried. What did I know as a new Christian? So, of course, I called my pastor, and we sat down and talked. And if somebody says something like that to you, and you're inclined to believe them, please at least extend the call to me. I already told you, I heard the true gospel. I heard the only gospel. But all of a sudden, somebody's coming up with a different gospel than the one I heard and I responded to. And I needed to figure this out out. And we all have things like that. Either bad uh, theology in a particular church, people of a different denomination or a cult or a different religion, the voices of culture that speak into our lives, and there's a lot of false gospels. Bad, not, not even wrong news, but bad news that's being proclaimed. How do we spot it? How are we able to discern a false gospel from the true gospel. And so I want to give you just a, briefly uh, some instruction here. First of all, the gospel is sufficient on its own. Can I get an amen? We're not that kind of church, but amen, right? Yeah, the gospel is sufficient on its own. And so anytime somebody is proclaiming the gospel minus something, that's wrong. The gospel minus something is wrong. For instance, Jesus paid for your sins, but he's not Lord. There are several cults, even that are represented in our area, that have some version of this theology. That, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, and that was important for your relationship with God, but he is not the Son of God. There is no Trinity. He's not, he's not deity, at least not in the way you're saying. The gospel minus this is false. Anytime the gospel minus those three essential elements or grace through faith or our problem, God's solution, the gospel minus is always, always false. And just like the gospel minus is false, so is the gospel plus something else. 
The gospel is sufficient on its own. You don't need to add something to God's good news to make it better news. The gospel needs nothing. In fact, if you add something to the gospel, the gospel plus something else, it is now a false gospel. And so the gospel plus is false. This is what salt of earth in the AOL chat room was trying to promote. A gospel plus. Yeah, the gospel's true, but you also have to then be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins in my denomination. Well, that's the gospel plus, and it renders it a false gospel. Many live as though it is the gospel plus enough good deeds to outweigh my bad deeds or something else. Even as Christians, we tend to think sometimes in terms of, I need the gospel, but I could add something to it. Or I need the gospel plus something else. It is never the gospel plus. Does that make sense? I sure hope so. Paul was constantly in conflict with people who believed in the gospel plus. And actually in our passage today from Acts Uh, we're going to see Paul's first encounter with those people. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 15. I checked the weather report. It's supposed to rain for the next two hours, so I just figured I'd preach for that entire time. You don't want to get wet anyway. Acts chapter 15, and we're going to start at the very beginning. And unlike my normal method, I'm going to stop and we're going to talk about this as we go through it, because we've got a long passage ahead of us. Again, we're going to be doing 35 verses today. If you were in Sunday school, you're prepared for this. Um, And if not, I waited until it was pouring rain to mention it, so you can't really walk out easily. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch, And we're teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. I'm going to pause right there after verse 1. So a couple things to set this up. God has been doing some amazing things. If you've been tracking with us as we've been going through Acts, you've seen recently that not only has God brought Jesus, the Messiah, he's promised to the Jews. Not only have thousands of Jewish people come to faith in Jesus, uh, even Paul, a leader and persecutor of Christians among the Jews, he came as well. But now Paul and Barnabas have been sent out on their first missionary journey through Greek cities among Gentiles. And as they're going, proclaiming the gospel, many, many, many are coming to faith in Jesus. And so now you not only have the Jewish believers, but you have a large contingent of non-Jewish believers, Gentiles, people coming from all kinds of pagan religions, pagan beliefs, uh, ideas about God, worldviews that are completely apart from what the Bible has to say, from who the true God is. And so while Paul and Barnabas are back in their home church of Antioch celebrating the victories that God has given them in their missionary journey, here come these people from Judea. And they're teaching the believers that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. 
Well, that just, that, that puts a little wrinkle in the works. Here we have a whole host of non-Jewish believers now. A whole host of Gentile, Greek believers. They're not circumcised. They don't even know the law of Moses. And these people are challenging their very salvation. Much like a particular individual was telling a 16-year-old kid excited about his newfound faith, you're not really saved unless you're baptized in a way in which you haven't been baptized yet. That'll take the wind out of your sails. And this is the conflict we enter into here in this passage. Pick it up in verse 2. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. I should hope it it did. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. And so we talked last week, we introduced this passage. What do you do when there's conflict in the church? And Paul and Barnabas are following Jesus' prescription to the letter. They addressed the issue directly, they brought in others, and now they're going to the leaders of the church. And in this day and age, in this time period, the apostles were there. And Jerusalem was still home base, if you will, of the church throughout the world. And so they were coming back to talk to the very top, the established leaders of the Jerusalem church, the apostles, and they were bringing this matter before them because this is a new situation, a new issue, something that they had never wrestled with before, So why is it new? Because now we have this influx of non-Jewish people coming to belief in Jesus. And what are we to make of them? But one amazing thing that we see throughout this is as Paul and Barnabas are heading to Jerusalem and they're sharing with all the believers they're bumping into along the way, everybody is excited at what God has been doing in bringing even Gentiles to themselves. And so here's what happened when they got to Jerusalem. Verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So in other words, they were expected to be just like the Jewish people. They had to be circumcised, which was a sign of the Jewish covenant before God, and they had to keep the entirety of the 600 plus laws in the Old Testament according to this group of Pharisees who were Christians and were present at this particular meeting. I do want to give just a little bit of context here. This is not way out of left field. This wasn't somebody woke up on the wrong side of the bed and just wanted to impose something on the Gentiles. This was the procedure for those Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism before Jesus came on the scene. In fact, we see a distinction throughout Acts and even in the Gospels between Jewish people and Gentiles, but then there's God-fearers, those who acknowledge or are seeking the God of Israel, and then there are converts to Judaism, those who completely turned to Judaism, to God through Judaism, and one of the expectations was that they would be circumcised as a sign of the covenant and that they would keep the law. And so the Pharisees are just employing the same tactic now in the context of the church. But there's a problem, and we're about to see what that is. Verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. 
After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Now, this is Peter. And Peter's standing up and he's reminding them of what we've read about just a short time ago. That Paul, that, that, that Jesus stretched Peter in this exact situation by calling him to the house of Cornelius, a centurion, a Roman, a Gentile. And him and his entire family gave their lives to Jesus and received the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Jewish believers did. And for Peter and all those with them, they were amazed. Wow, they're not second-class citizens. They're not different. God does everything among the Gentiles just as he did among us. They are included fully into the body of Christ, into the grace of Jesus. They can take part in the gospel fully just as we can. And so Peter has experience with this, and here's what his conclusion is. Why on earth would we try to take these people that God has led to Jesus and force them to take on the law of Moses that we couldn't keep, that our ancestors couldn't keep? In fact, that no human being apart from Jesus was ever able to complete fully. Everybody fails over and over again in the keeping of the law, why should we thrust this on them? And then he makes a very important point. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So it doesn't matter whether you're a Jewish person or a Gentile. Everybody is saved in Jesus by grace through faith, not by obedience to the law, not by works, not by the gospel plus something else. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. And so here he points to the precedent in the Old Testament, the promises of God that by Jesus coming and restoring Israel, by, by bringing Jews back to God, that is also the way in which all of humanity will see the true God through Jesus Christ. And so these things are playing out in their midst. Verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, 
from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. I want to pause for a second and just make sure we understand what he was just saying. James is agreeing with Peter. We don't need to thrust the law on the Gentiles. They're not going to be able to keep it just like we weren't able to keep it. Why would we make it hard? Jesus says, you know, my, my, my burden is easy. My yoke is light. And then we're going to try to thrust all this on them that they can't possibly live up to. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so what he's saying here, what Peter said and James agrees with is this, that salvation is by grace through faith. Salvation doesn't come by obedience to the law. But that doesn't mean that now that we are in this relationship with God, now that we've availed ourselves of the good news and have received our salvation, it doesn't mean that there's not a way in which we're called to live. But even so, we're not to put on the Gentiles the law of Moses. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to follow the 600 plus laws of the Old Testament the way Israel was called to do in their history. But there is still a reason for good instruction. Some things that they should be aware of, things they should avoid in light of their salvation, in light of their response to the good news, in light of their discipleship. And he lists four things for us. And so here's the, here's the four things that James suggests uh, to them, that they should abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So I just want to spend a moment here, and what on earth is this saying? What does that even mean? Raise your hand if you're a Gentile, a non-Jewish person in our room today. Raise your hand. Okay, so this applies to you, right? So we need to know what we're talking about here because James has given instruction for the church, uh, and this is what you're called to, right? Uh, abstain from food polluted by idols. Now you've got to remember, this people group, these Gentiles, these Greeks that came to faith in Jesus, these non-Jewish people, they didn't come from nothing, to Jesus, they came from other religions, pagan religions, where they would literally worship other gods and fashion idols that represented these gods, and they would sacrifice food, animals, to these gods and sell the, the meat off and eat this food. But eating this food was more than just eating food. Eating this food was part of entering into this whole worship of these false gods. And what we see in 1 Corinthians is this ongoing problem that as people are being called out of these pagan religions and coming to faith in Jesus, one of those stumbling blocks that sets them back or makes them walk back into their old life is this whole issue of idolatry. We see even in the Old Testament how tempted Israel was by idolatry. Imagine if you're a Gentile and this is all you have ever known. And so avoid those things that snap you back to the false way of life, that take you back to false gospels, that take you away from the one true gospel. And so one of those things is food sacrifice to idols. Another one is sexual immorality. Well, that makes a lot of sense, right? Even in our day to avoid sexual immorality. But again, in their day, sexual immorality was part and parcel of the whole religious system of the ancient Near East. By by, by getting together with temple prostitutes, you make the gods happy and they bless your crops and your crops grow and everybody's happy, at least in their worldview. And so it's very easy to snap back into that. And then also uh, blood and you know, eating animals that were strangled so the blood is still in them. 
That's a provision that God actually told Noah way back in Genesis. It's for all of mankind. And again, here it's tied to the way in which they lived before Jesus. And so for good, proper discipleship, let's avoid those things that snap us back. Now raise your hand if you've eaten food sacrificed to idols. That's just not part of our culture. That's not, that's not part of this part of the world, right? I don't think anybody in, the, in, in America well, you know, really has to worry about that particular temptation. But as we consider the, the spirit of what James is saying here, let's remember the things in our culture, the things in our past, that do snap us back to our old selves, to our flesh, to those things that we, had, we, we, we spent our time in before giving our lives to Christ. And we need to cut those things out so as not to fall backwards into them. Picking up in verse 22. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agree to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. <coughs> Excuse me. I want to draw out one thing here that's distinct from the way in which we see James's message recorded. In the letter, it says it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that these are the things that we ought to instruct you in. And so there is no sense in which these, this Jewish council at Jerusalem just said, all right, well, what makes sense here? Let's just troubleshoot this thing. You know, let's just think through this. You know, what, what's the easiest thing for them to do? Well, again, like we heard last week from Clint, leadership is directed by the Holy Spirit. And it was the Holy Spirit who directed the early church, the apostles and church leaders, to give this instruction. Finishing up our passage, verses 30 to 35, it says, So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. All right, that was a long passage. Stretch if you need to. No? Okay. So what do we need to take from this together today? We're not in that first century church. We didn't come out of necessarily the same things that this early group of Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus came out of. But there are good warnings for us here too. 
And the first is this, that we do need to watch out for false teachers who promote false gospels in our midst. There's only one true gospel. It is the only gospel. And we need to discern and we need to watch out for false teachers. So Paul and Barnabas recognized the false teaching and they addressed it directly. Can you imagine if Paul and Barnabas heard these people coming from Judea saying to these brand new baby Christians, hey, you know, you got to take the whole law of Moses on. You got to be circumcised. Otherwise, you're not even saved. And Paul and Barnabas looked up and said, oof, I don't think I agree with that. But who am I? And then just keep going about their business without addressing it. Where would we be today? Can you imagine? And we are all called to stand up and to speak out when we hear a false gospel being proclaimed in our midst, when our brothers and sisters are susceptible to it, and we need to be able to speak for it. Scripture calls us to watch out. In fact, this is a Paul again. We see this later on in Acts. We're going to visit this passage in a month or two. Uh, but here's from Acts 20, verses 28 to 31. Paul, in his, one of his missionary journeys, is about to leave a town, leave a church, and he gives instruction to the elders. And here's what he's talking about. He's talking to the elders of a church, and hear this warning. He says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave... Savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Man, that's pretty serious. Paul is warning this church that after I go, they're going to poach your people. False teachers proclaiming a false gospel, either, either the gospel minus or the gospel plus, is coming in here, and they're going to lead your people astray. And you need to be good shepherds, and you need to watch out for this flock, because the wolves are coming. And Paul was persistent in this warning. That's how sure he was of this fact. And friends, I have to tell you, we have that all throughout the New Testament. We have false teachers and false gospels throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, and they are in the church today, right in our midst. They're on the Christian radio station. They're on the television. They're in the Christian section of the bookstore. They're everywhere. And we need to know how to watch out and speak up over these things. Here's another warning from 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. I figured I used a lot of uh, Pauline examples. I'll use somebody else. Here's Peter. He says, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. And so, yeah, they're going to get theirs, right? But still, they're going to do damage along the way. Paul says this in writing to the Galatians. He says that even if we or an angel from heaven comes and proclaims to you another gospel other than the one you heard, may they be eternally damned. May they be condemned forever, no longer under God's grace. 
That's how serious it is, because they wreck the church of God by leading people astray from the one true gospel. And we need to know how to watch out, be discerning, and speak up when we see it in our midst. And lastly, we need to hold fast to the gospel. We need to hold fast to the gospel. Paul says this in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. What is Paul saying here? There's only one gospel, one true gospel. There's only one gospel. And if you stake your claim on the gospel, but then give it up or walk away and embrace a different gospel, you have, in essence, given up the salvation that comes through the one true gospel. What other means is there for you to be saved? And so we need to not only identify it, we ourselves need to hold fast to it, discerning the truth and standing firm on the gospel that is over and over repeated here in Scripture. The gospel that gives us true hope, the gospel that gives us true life, the gospel we need to be proclaiming to others. And it always includes Jesus' lordship, death, and resurrection. It always includes our problem and God's solution. It is always by grace through faith. Nothing else will do. No gospel minus No gospel plus, because those aren't even gospels at all. That's bad news. And we need to be people of the good news.